Sadia took her mother's scarf and draped it over her swollen face. As it lifted in the breeze, I caught a glimpse of the wound on her mother's neck. She turned her son away, knelt down, and tried to comfort him. Gina put her head on my shoulder. She was shaking a little. As horrible as that moment was, what I was about to suggest was going to make it much worse. We can't leave the body where it is, I said. Gina pushed away from me. Bloody hell, Tom, give them a minute, would you? I shook my head. We can't. She's almost doubled in size already. She must have been infected out on the street. There's, there's a wound on her neck. I glanced around the rooftop looking for a solution. We have to throw the body over the edge, I said. Sadia seemed to understand what I was suggesting. She stood up, tears streaming down her face and stepped between me and her mother's body. I'm sorry, I don't like it either, but after what I just saw downstairs, we can't leave her up here with us, I said. Gina shoved me a little. There's a kid here, Tom. You want to traumatise him even more? I'm not suggesting we do it in front of him, Gina. But even if we had to, it seems preferable to him getting infected and turning into one of those... those monsters. I saw them as well, Tom, in the foyer. It seemed like the ones that were alive were the ones you had to worry about. Look... I'm not trying to be insensitive. The fact is we don't know what they are or how any of this works. But it seems to me the smart thing to do is to get that body off the rooftop. She's dead. We aren't. Yet. Yeah, alright, Gina said. I guess you're right. Sadia pushed past me and took a pair of gloves and a mask from the plastic tub. She put them on, grabbed her mother's wrists and started dragging her to the edge of the rooftop. I tried to help but she pushed my hand away. Gina sat with the boy and tried to offer him some water. I felt truly terrible as Sadia let her mother's body drop over the railing, but I still think it was the right call. Gina dug through the plastic tub. Not a big haul, Tom. She pulled out the last of the three respirator masks and looked around at us all mentally doing the math. We're one short, she said. I reached up to remove mine, but Gina quickly tossed the one she had to Sadia. Here, I wouldn't be able to smoke with this on anyway, she smiled. Sadia nodded to her and placed the mask over her son's face. He didn't protest at all. His eyes were fixed on something in the distance. He lifted his arm and pointed. We all turned to look as the chug of a large military helicopter's blades rang out over the city. It was approaching from the north. A bright searchlight hanging from its belly scoured the streets and buildings below. Thank fuck. This could be our way out. I pulled out the torch and slapped it a few times to get it to turn on, then waved it above my head, jumping around like a fool trying to attract the attention of the pilot. Gina jumped up as well, waving her arms and shouting. The chopper hovered a few blocks away, its light trained on something in the street. It held there for a few moments, then rose up and flew in a sweeping arc past us towards the burning building to our left. We all screamed our lungs out as it passed us. 
It circled the flames a few times, its searchlight examining the destruction on the street in front and the building itself. I pointed the torch directly at it and waved my hand in front of the light trying to signal in Morse code. Three quick flashes, three slow, three quick. I waited a moment, then repeated the pattern. Three quick, three slow, three quick. Three quick, three slow, three quick. The chopper hovered again, out in front of the fiery opening of the building. Then its searchlight swung across the street and onto us, bathing us and the rooftop in blindingly beautiful light. They'd seen us. It started to move in our direction, angling forward, when a flaming figure hurled itself from the top of the burning building above. Limbs flailing, the human fireball flew through the air and slammed into the rotor blades, bursting into a cloud of fire and flesh. What the fuck, I whispered. The chopper rocked from the impact, but it looked like it might correct. Then four or five others sprinted out of the flames and launched themselves at the metal dragon, their bodies slamming into it like boulders hurled from a siege catapult. The chopper lurched from side to side and its tail spun out of control. It floated down the street towards us and then dropped out of view. The explosion knocked us all off our feet. I got up and ran to the railing. The chopper had crashed into the side of ours and the building next door. The heat from the flames was strong enough to make me look away. I glanced back at the others on the rooftop in shock, then noticed. Next to the door to the stairs was a fire hose, coiled on a metal spool. I ran over and ripped it free, looking around to see where I could connect the other end. Then Gina piped up. I don't think the water would do much good, Tom. Not with all that fuel burning. Maybe she was right. I looked out over the city. It was all so insane. I could hardly think straight. One of the freaks in the stairwell threw itself at the door again. I moved away, over to the railing with the flaccid hose still in my hand. The fire escape, which would have been the only other way off this rooftop, was ironically engulfed in the rolling flames pouring out of the crashed helicopter. Trapped. I circled the perimeter again like a caged animal. Even if we could get off the roof, where would we go? The city was completely fucked. I can't think of a more eloquent way of putting it. To get to my family on the other side, I'd have to go around it somehow. Then it hit me. One of the more unique attributes of the city is it's almost completely surrounded by a wide moat of parklands. If I backtracked towards the east, I could move through the park and circle around the city centre. The terrain would be more open, no cars or buildings or laneways for the infected to surprise us from. I ran back over to the east side of the roof and looked out towards the park. The path between us seemed clear of any obvious impact sites. It might just work, I thought. Except that we were stuck up there. Then, a slight glimmer of light from the roof of the pub in the laneway below caught my eye. The guy sitting on the roof had just lit a smoke. I looked down at the fire hose in my hands, and an absolutely stupid, but potentially viable idea washed over me. Gina's voice surprised me. I didn't realise she was just there. I'm almost out of smokes. If you're thinking what I think you are, I'm in, she said. It might be our only option, I replied. 
I unspooled the entire length of hose and laid it out in lines on the roof. It was pretty long. I figured it should reach. There were sturdy-looking metal legs on the side of the AC unit, so I tied off on that and dragged the rest of the hose over to the railing. Yelling out to get the attention of the guy on the pub roof, I held up the end of the hose and did my best to charade throwing it down to him. He just raised his glass to me again. Cheers. Ah, he'll get the idea when he sees me throw it, I figured. So that's what I did. The nozzle was metal and had a little heft to it, so I swung it around my head a few times like a cowboy and then threw it as hard as I could across the lane. It sailed out into the evening air, but the drag of the coiled hose slowed it down too much and it fell a few metres short of the pub roof, arcing back and slapping into the side of our building. Shit. I needed something heavier on the end of it to give it enough momentum to make it across the gap. The axe wouldn't do it. It wasn't heavy enough. Then I remembered the chair. Gina, can you grab that chair we had at the door, I asked. She walked away to fetch it while I began the arduous task of pulling the hose back up. A few minutes later, she returned with the chair and a concerned expression. I don't know if that door will hold too much longer and there's a lot of smoke coming up from the other side of the building, she said. I dragged the last of the hose up over the edge. Let's hope this works then, I replied. With it tied to the end of the hose, I took a bit of a run-up and hurled the office chair over the railing with every ounce of strength I had. It spun as it soared through the air, crashing and shattering into chunks as it hit the roof of the pub. The guy with the beer scrambled backwards to avoid the shrapnel. The length of hose dropped under the weight of itself stretched between the two buildings. It dragged what was left of the chair closer and closer to the edge of the pub roof. If the guy didn't grab it, it would slip over the edge and we'd be screwed. He just stood there, watching it slither past him. Then at the very last moment, he stamped on the end of the hose like someone trying to kill a roach. He turned and looked up at us, his foot still choking the hose. Please tie it off, please tie it off, please tie it off, I thought. Gina grabbed my arm. After a painfully long pause, he dragged his end back through the open door in the small shed-like structure, which apart from his milk crate was the only other notable feature of the pub roof. A minute or so later, he re-emerged. I couldn't be sure, but it looked like he'd refilled his beer when he was in there. I hoped he'd managed to tie off the hose properly as well while he was at it. He looked up, raised his pint to us again, and plopped himself back on his milk crate. Right, I, I think we're okay, I said to Gina. Let's figure out how to get us all down. Gina tried to explain the plan to Sadia. I packed the remaining contents of the plastic tub into the mesh basket under the seat of the kid's stroller and tied one of the fire blankets around one of the handles. I showed Sadia that if we looped the fire blanket over the hose and tied it off on both sides, then the boy could sit in the stroller like a ski lift and slide down. I would go first to make sure it held. If it took my weight, the others should be okay. It was a crazy plan, but under the circumstances, I couldn't see any other option. I stood precariously on the edge of the safety railing, 
holding the axe handle over the hose, a fist on either side. My knees rattled like maracas. I noticed a blanket of dark fog slowly entering the far end of the laneway. It moved like it had a strange kind of sentience, slinking between the buildings towards us. We were running out of time. I pulled my respirator mask up over my mouth and pushed off. It felt like I was free-falling for the first few seconds before the slack in the hose tightened. The bounce almost ripped the axe out of my hands, but I gripped it like a vice. Picking up speed as I slid down, my weight swung to the right, the hose slipping across the handle of the axe and scraping against the webbing between my thumb and forefinger of my left hand, slicing through the rubber glove and into my flesh like a bandsaw. The pain was excruciating. I was coming in hot. As I got closer to the roof of the pub, it felt like my hand was being cut in half. As soon as I cleared the edge of the building, I let go and dropped the last couple of metres, slamming hard into the cement rooftop. It hurt pretty much everywhere, but I'd made it. I rolled onto my back, nursing my hand and started giggling like an idiot. I could see Gina celebrating my stunt up at the other end of the hose with Sadia next to her. Then the bloke with the beer leant over me, a goofy grin cracking across his stubbled, leathery face. Fucking hell, mate. Think you're bloody evil Knievel or something, do you? Sitting up carefully, I checked over my limbs. Nothing broken, but my hand was pretty messed up. I peeled off the remnants of the glove. Blood oozed down my forearm. Leatherface was holding his pint in one hand, and a roll-your-own-smoke between the stained fingers of the other. He eyed the axe on the ground next to me suspiciously. "'You aren't going to make trouble for me, are you, mate?' he asked. "'Uh, no. Thanks for helping us. We couldn't stay up there.' He shrugged and looked out into the distance. "'No worries. Bar's pretty well stocked in there. Plenty to go around.' "'You alone here?' I asked. He grinned. "'Yep. Always wanted my own bar.' I think I'll rename the place Davo's Dive. He popped his smoke in his mouth and held out his hand. Name's Davo. I shook it with my good hand and held up the bloodied one. Yeah, good to meet you, Davo. I'm Tom. Is there a bathroom in there somewhere I can clean this up, I asked. Yep, he replied and hoisted me to my feet effortlessly. He was wiry but strong for a guy who looked to be in his early 60s. His clothes suggested he was a a tradie of some sort, someone who'd spent a lot of years working out in the sun. You might want to use the ladies' room, though. Probably a bit cleaner. Speaking of ladies, I looked up at Gina and Sadia and held up my hands, gesturing for them to give me a minute. Then Davo led me inside. Welcome to paradise, he said, as we walked down the short set of steps to the upstairs bar. TV doesn't work, but the beers are still cold. Bloody good spot to sit and watch the world burn, I reckon. It was one big open plan room. Bar on the left with a rectangle window behind it looking into a kitchen. Couches along the opposite wall under the window. And a wooden stairwell that punched a hole through the garish carpet across from us. The toilet doors were behind that. Sort yourself out over there. Can I get you a drink? Davo asked. No, I'm good, I replied. Fair enough, more for me then, he said as he leant over the bar to top up his pint. 
As I walked past the stairwell, I could see that Devo had filled it up with tables and chairs to block it off from the lower level. A heavy-looking ATM machine sat atop the pile. The ladies' room was surprisingly clean and had a nice array of soaps, hand sanitizer spray and some sanitary pads in a little shelf next to the hand basins. I rinsed my hand under the cold water and cleaned the wound as best I could. The cut carved about an inch into the fleshy meat between my thumb and forefinger. It stung like a bastard when I sprayed it with a hand sanitizer. It'd need stitches, but for now, I grabbed a few of the sanitary pads, stuck them over the wound, and pulled my one good rubber glove over the hand to make a makeshift dressing. It'd have to do. When I came back out, Davo was leaning in the doorway to the rooftop, looking out at the street. That cloud thing's getting closer, he said. You might want to hurry up and help those sheilas down off the roof. He was right. The fog had crept closer while we were inside. The edge of the dark wave was about four or five buildings down from us now. I ran back inside and grabbed an armful of cushions off the couch. It might help to soften their landing a little. I waved my arms above my head. You've got to jump! Now! I yelled to them. I could see Gina and Sadia were exchanging words. Sadia was supposed to send the boy down next, but she was shaking her head and pointing at Gina. Clearly frustrated, Gina stepped up to the edge. She turned and said something to Sadia, then looped the strap of her handbag over the hose and pushed off. The hose bounced as it took her weight, and I heard her shriek a little as she picked up speed. The handbag seemed to be working better than the axe handle. She flew gracefully through the void between the rooftops. I readied myself to try and catch her as she approached, when an inky black tendril snapped out of the approaching fog like a chameleon's tongue catching a fly and wrapped around Gina's leg. It wrenched her free of the fire hose. As she fell away, her body smashed into a power transformer below, sending a shower of sparks into the air and blacking out lights all around us. The tendril slowly dragged Gina's mangled body back into the fog. Copyright Jasper St. Auburn West, 2020. All rights reserved.